joy in one another today. Um, I'm always excited that this weekend is always fun. It's a fun weekend. I'm going to be one because it's my birthday weekend. And it's, uh, so, something so bad that you can kind of put it in your bones, right? And, you know, it's like you want something. And it's just like it's in those times and in those moments you really, really kind of desire, you want something. And I feel like birthdays is one of those things, is at least one of the opportunities that you're supposed to get those those things and those presents. And, and I remember, for me, growing up, hats. Hats was always a thing for me growing up. It was always one of the You got to understand, for me, like I had the same size head when I was like 12. And you know, my body wasn't the same, the same. And so like every time I was young, you know, like I would go to hat stores and go to places and I could never find a hat that fit my head. You know, it was always awkward. So I could never ever wear hats. Because people always ask me, how do you wear hats? And that, you know, but I remember one day I went to you know, New York and you know, a guy was like, hey, I'm going to take you to this hat store. I was like, no, I can't wear hats because hats are always too small. And, you know, and especially when you got the button hats, like I'm always on the last button. Like, you know, it's like, and I'm like, it was always an awkward thing. And so, I, you know, so I was like, I don't know, I'll go to the hat store with you. And and I remember going to the hat store and for the first time, there was actually a hat that fit my head, and I just fell in love. It was, it was like this is it. Like, you know, and I went, and so every single time I would go to New York. I was like, I had to go to this place to give me a hat from the hat store that has hats that fit my head. Because it was something I always wanted so bad that I like, I could feel it. And my mom said, I remember one time going up there and I was just like, all right. So, you know, hey, I, every time I come up here, I always, always get one hat and so on. I don't know. I love um, getting the hats. And, but I just want to know, is there any stores like this? Like, do you have any stores in Georgia? And, she, the, the person responded and was just like, yeah, we, we have one and it's in Savannah. And I was like, yes, in the bar. And I was like, there's another one we just opened up and it's in a place, it's called um, Pine, State, uh, Pine City Market. And I was like, God, like you get that for me. Right? And he opened up that has to for me, so whatever you think about that. But it was something that I wanted so bad and I felt it. You know, but ever since then, I've got that, so this is my new hat that I just got to the but it doesn't always work out that way. It doesn't always work out that way. It doesn't always, you don't always get the thing that you so desire in your bones. You know, hats is, you know, it's one of the things that I did, that I did, but it's not the thing, right, that oftentimes, you know, oftentimes we, many of us, we go and we live um, desiring something, wanting something, never to ever get it. You know, the Bible even speaks to this, you know, in um, Matthew chapter 5, it talks about this idea that we will hunger and thirst for righteousness. Right? And if you recognize this idea of hungering and thirsting, is that when you hunger and you thirst for something, that means you're never satiated, you never are satisfied, you never get it. You continue to hunger, you continue to thirst for God's will, for righteousness, and wanting something in your bones. Jeremiah, Said it this way, he's talking about that message is, is like fire in my bones, it's shut up in my bones, right? And I just, just imagine this kind of desiring something or wanting something so bad that you can put it in your bones. I just imagine Moses, you know, Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 34 is at the end, he's like sitting, right? And he's like going on and he's sitting on the top of Mount Pinsley, and basically. 
goes and he's laying down and he's facing Jericho. He's facing the promised land, never to ever go, because God has already told him that you're not going into the promised land. That if you either look at the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 1 and 2, which talks about there is an 11-day journey. 11 days to that, that, that was supposed to go. 11 days from um, Mount Sinai to Kadesh Barnea, right? And the end of the day, but then in the very next verse in Deuteronomy chapter 1 and 3, you know what it says? 40 years later. 40 years later. And if you pass that up, that you think you, you'll miss it. That something that was supposed to take 11 days ended up taking over 40 years. And here you have Moses in the last year, in the last years of his life, finally about to commission his people, commission Joshua to go, that he has something so deep in his bones to never experience the thing that he has been yearning for over four decades. Over four decades. And you know that if you, if you chase, uh, track the book of Numbers and if you track the Pentateuch that was in that time, the first five books has been Moses being all is in that time of wondering, in that time of wonder, of wandering in the wilderness that he had this, he was pinned to it. And basically the message of Deuteronomy is that um, even when we're faithless, God is faithful. That's the message. That even when he distracts it all the way from Genesis to Deuteronomy, and then he goes on and he tells, and then he gives uh, Joshua, the beginning of the last of Joshua, the beginning of the book of Joshua, he says, in the same way God says to Moses and to the people, in the same way I was with Moses, I was with people. Joshua, but only be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. Because as you go, there's going to be pressure. There's going to be stress. There's going to be problems. There's going to be tension. But know that in that I am with you. Today, what I want to talk to you guys about is to talk about the burden of hope. The burden of hope. And really, how can we endure the distress, especially when we're Christian? Especially in the midst of persecution. You know, in that, in that, I want you to kind of focus in on the word distress, enduring the distress. The distress. And I'm going to just kind of first break down this understanding of distress because, um, first, when we say stress, this is what stress is. It's not going to be on the screen, but this is what stress is. Stress is simply when something or life's happening in a way that you wish it would. That's my definition of stress. Is life happening like you wish it wouldn't happen? And when life is happening like you wish it wouldn't, that brings about stress. That brings about stress. Right? But it was in that that we gotta understand that life is gonna happen as it happens. Right? And, and then, but what happens is, is that we have the opportunity or we have the ability to do one or two things that we can either cry out or hide out. And it is in that that many times, many of us, we use our mind, we use our intellect, we use our will to hide out, we don't want to survive the moment, versus crying out to God. That in the midst of our distress, because stress can manifest itself in a couple of ways. It can either manifest itself in distress or it can manifest itself in what we call eustress. You've probably heard of the term distress before. You guys heard of that term 
distress. And distress is simply the idea, because if you know that stress is just simply pressure, distress is um, a pressure or a stress caused by outside forces. Distress is pressure or stress that is caused because of outside forces. It's external things that are happening to you that oftentimes you can't control that can bring about distress. It's external reality, right? But, so that's distress. But you stress is different. You stress is the internal pressure or stress from within in regards to the stressors or the stressful environment. So distress is about the external and you stress is about the internal. You stress is where we find this ability to trust God, to trust others, to trust ourselves. It's where we understand the internal pressures of um, life. But see, the reality, this is the reality that we all got to embrace, though, is that there, uh, you know, we, we, you ever heard the term, like, I just want to get away? I just want to get away. But the reality is, is that there is no place called away. There is no place that you can get away from stress. Because even in, you know, even if you go off into the islands or go off to the Caribbean or go off to whatever your destination, you still bring you. And that stress can remain. That burden can remain. And so the question becomes is that are we supposed to alleviate ourselves from pain or to embrace the pain? And this is what the Bible refers to or talks about as the burden of hope. The burden of hope. You see, and this is kind of where we find ourselves today. Again, you've had the Bible, you've already read it, but we're looking at Revelation. Revelation chapter 2. And here we have a message, the message to the church of Smyrna. And what's unique about this message is that the church of Smyrna is the, actually, out of all of the seven churches, it's the one church that does not have a rebuke. Right? In each one of the messages that there was a, there was a condemnation, but then there was also, this is what I have against you. But right here, this is one of the only passages that we have where there is no rebuke to, where, um, to this church. And, you know, and oftentimes, what the thing is, is that we, we think that we treat God like a, like a slot machine, or we treat God kind of in this, like if I, if I do good, then you owe me good. Right? I'll do my part, God, you do your part. And this is why whenever hardship or pain or trauma comes in, the first thing that we go to is like, what did I do wrong to deserve this? What did I do wrong to bring about this stress? Because we think that life is about, is, is, is supposed to be stress-free. Right? But see, the reality is, is that God made his people struggle. He made his people struggle. That when Jacob is wrestling in Genesis chapter 32, he's wrestling with God. Basically, he changes his name from Jacob to Israel. And Israel means to struggle with God and prevail. God names his people struggle. There's something about the stress, the hardship, the heartache, the tension, the pain, 
that God knows that you cannot escape. But the question becomes, what do we do? What do we do with this stress? And so the Bible starts off, I mean, when this sentence starts off, talks about, listen, God is saying, let us know who he is. He says, I am the beginning, I am the end, I am the alpha, I am the omega. I have experienced death, and I have experienced resurrection. He basically puts himself up there, recognizing that in the place of Smyrna, Smyrna was a, was a, was a city that, that was known for rebirth. And so Jesus, just like he's done in most of the letters to the churches, he puts himself and says that I am the Alpha. I am the beginning. I am the end. I am the one who both died and experienced trauma and death to the fullest, and I have also been resurrected. I am him. And then he goes on and he begins to start and talks about, and he lets the people know the people in Smyrna, the church in Smyrna, know, I know your distress. I know the hardship. I know your pain. Revelation chapter 2, 9 says it this way. He says, I know your affliction and poverty, but you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not but our synagogue of Satan. Don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Look, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison to test you. And you will experience affliction for 10 days. You see, right here, there's three things that the Lord starts off and says, hey, there's, there's three distressing things that the, the Lord wants you to know is that I am intimately aware of. I am intimately involved. In when it comes, he says, the first one, he says, I know your poverty. I know your poverty. You see, right here we got to understand that the type of affliction that was going on during that time to the church of Smyrna was, was a, a, an affliction that because Christians didn't bend the knee to society, very different than the church of Pergamum or some of the other churches that we read. This church did not bend the knee for it, and it had some significant ramifications. It caused them to be poor. It wasn't that if you stay with me, then I'm just going to simply bless you and you're going to have your best life now. He says, I know your distress. That word right there, affliction. Right, verse 9, that some translations translate that word distress. That I know your distress. I know the, that life is not happening the way that you wanted it to happen. And some of this is out of your control. Some of this is happening outside of it. And because you have chosen not to bend the knee to the societal stressors or societal pressures, you have suffered when the Bible says poverty. You're poor. Right? You decided not to cheat on the job, even though everybody else in your job cheats. And that's part you about poverty. You decided not to bow the knee to false gods, even though everybody else in order to find the corporate life. You decided to take on the realities, the stresses, the do, not as the world would demand you to do. But you desire and decided to follow me. And because of that, it says, and I know your poverty. It has caused you to be poor, materially poor. So it says, I know 
But not only does he say, I look at poverty, he goes on and he says, I know the accusations. I know the slander that people, the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not. You know that there's some accusations that are that are coming about. Then he says that these accusations come from a synagogue of Satan. A synagogue of Satan. Now the word Satan, this is it's interesting because he's going to use Satan here, but later he's going to use the word the devil. Right? And you know, we might just kind of think that it's kind of vague, but Satan basically means I know the synagogue of Satan is the synagogue or the house of your adversary. Satan is an adversary. He says, I know the house of your adversaries. There's a group of people that are clustering up. There's a group of people who claim to be Jews that are clustering up. Their main effort is to tear you down. I know those people. I know the slander. I know how they're getting together. I know they're, they say they're Jews. They say they're with us or with me, but they're really the house of your adversaries. They're the house of my adversaries. Right. He says, these so-called Jews, he says, they may be religious, but they're not righteous. They represent the voice or the house of Satan. They're sons of Satan. They're not sons of mine. He says, so I know, I know your poverty, and I know because of your poverty, it's caused you to be materially poor. It's caused you poverty. It has had significant ramifications. I know the accusations, the slander of your enemies, those so-called people who say they're with you, but they're actually gathering up just to persecute you. I know that, church. He says, and then he later finally says, I know your adversary. He says, look, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. Right? You see, the devil right there is the idea of the accuser. So he says, the house of Satan, or the synagogue of Satan, is a house of adversaries. And then he says, but the devil, the accuser, that Jesus is going to somehow turn your righteous standing and turn it so that it's actually going to bring about your demise. It's going to bring about imprisonment. It's going to bring about imprisonment. And he says, and so he starts that, and he says, I don't want you to miss this point, right? There's no rebuke. All of the other letters have a rebuke because we know what all the other things we treat everybody like the book of Job. Okay, now just tell me, what did you do? Job, repent. Change up. There's no rebuke here. He says, I know. Right? The damage that this has caused you. I know you standing up has done this. I know the slander. I know the affliction, the, the poverty. I know the distress that you have. And he says, look, in some translations, has to be hope. Behold. And in, in, in that behold, he basically says, I want you to pay attention to this. He says, your accuser, Satan, he's about to do something. And he's about to throw some of you into prison. And this imprisonment is going to test you. And you will experience affliction for 10 days. And so we recognize 
that this is about to happen is that because of a church that has decided to remain faithful, the church of Smyrna, who has no reviews, who have decided to remain faithful, instead of getting all of God's blessings, a lot of the theology we teach, they get a lot of more sorrow and more pain and more distress, more hurt. The point of this letter comes to their, this is how we remain faithful and not bend the knee to our distress. When there's accusations, that's going on about us. When there's adversaries, that's gathering against us. How do we remain faithful? You know, in verse 10, it simply says this, be faithful to the point of death, and I will give you eternal life. I will give you eternal life. And one of the things that we got to understand is that the way that we don't bend the knee to all, to distressful situations is that it is to surrender to our new stress. What do I mean by that? Surrendering to our new stress. Right here, you see two things. It says that in the midst of all this, of knowing your slander, I know your power, I know the accusations, I know that you have enemies against you. I know these things, but the one kind of call, one command, one imperative is to, to the church is to remain faithful. Be faithful. And he says, be faithful even if it means death. Even to the point of death. Be faithful. Right? That idea to be faithful means to persevere. It means to endure. Endure. Right? It means to to not lose your integrity in the midst of the, the external. Because you know, it's just like everybody, whenever sin comes in, it's just kind of like we, we will start leaning in on them. You know, nobody's perfect. God understands that if we were put in this situation, it's okay for us to have that momentary life. It's okay for us. And again, I'm not talking about being perfect, I'm talking about. Maintaining your integrity, maintaining your faithfulness. That again, that something that was supposed to take 11 days ended up taking 40 years later. Right? Because they bent the knee to the distress of Satan instead of surrendering to the you stress that comes from the Spirit. 1 John 4 4 says it like this. He says, greater is he that is where, that is within me, than he that is in the world. The Bible talks and it, it's very clear that it says, even though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh, but the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty in God. The casting out arguments and imagination, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Right? And so when there's distressful situations, when, when there's viruses that's going on, when there's pandemics, when there's tension, when there's political, when there's all these distressors, these stressors that bring about pain and trauma, he says, greater is he, don't fight it with external soul, but with greater is he that is in me. Surrender to the you stress of the spirit. So what is you stress? Right? What does it mean to have the burden of hope, the desire to hunger and to thirst for righteousness, for God's way to be done? Right? The internal pressure or the stress that's within us. Right? How do we 
maintain that. But it's, it's in our that, that new stress that gives us the ability to survive. And there's two things that we see in here, two characteristics that we see in the text that bring about the new stress. One of them is belief, and that one is birth. Belief and birth. Belief. And this, when we talk about the idea of new stress, let me just demonstrate it like another way. I had something that I can bend but not break. Give me something that, give me a book or something. You got to You got to feel cute, ready. This <laughs> um, but just imagine, I'm just, just imagine. This, you know, never mind. <laughs> just imagine if you have a pole, right? Like if I, if I see the pole and I was bending the pole, I would represent the external. Reality, the external force, the distress upon the bar. But we recognize that the bar was made to have a certain amount of pressure that came from the outside, that it was kind of a bend but don't break mentality, right? And that that bendability what is the U stress that's in the bar. Does that make sense? So the external force that I'm putting on it is the distress. The internal reality that the fact that it's able to bend but not break is the eustress that that bar has because it was built in order to take pressure. To take the pressure that was on the bar, um, that was given from the external forces. So eustress happens when we believe what God says about us and not what our adversaries are accusing us saying. That when we talk about this idea of belief, is when we begin to believe that you trust against or an actor, when we believe more about what God says about us than we believe about what others say, what our accusers, what our adversaries say or do about us. Because in there, when we to go back and read, read verses 9 through 11, you would see that he says, I know your power. I know you're probably, I see you're probably, but you are rich. But you're rich, right? And then the question becomes, when he talks about faith, faith comes by hearing, right? Faith is the evidence of things hoped for. But we recognize that there's a burden because it's so often to believe the things that we see, the things that we feel, the things that we can touch, the things that are right before us, than to hear that someone uh, to believe the reality of what God says about us. He says, I heard, I know your property, but know that you are rich. He says, I know your accusations. I know the slander that's coming from the household of your adversaries. But ultimately, he says, but you are mine. I see you. You're my kids. You're king's kids. I know those people who are accusing you who are slandering against you. He says, but I see. See, oftentimes when we interpret the verses of how God sees all and knows all, we always use it right, as a sense of guilt to try to get you to act right. But God sees and he also knows that if you are persecuted for righteousness sake, that he sees you, he knows you, and even though he may bring about a momentary affliction, he's with you. He sees you. He says, I know, and not I actually allow. I know the testing. I know the trials 
that you are getting into. But what he says in the verse 10, he says in that second part, that I will give you a crown of life. I will give you a crown of life. And so the first thing is that do we believe the struggle, the internal struggle that we have? So it's first is belief, but the other one is the burden. The burden that we see. Right? And another, so you stress happens when we believe what God says about us and not our adversaries or our accusers say or do. But it also comes from burden. You stress happens when we allow ourselves to be burdened with the hope that belief requires. You stress happens when we allow ourselves to be burdened with the hope that belief, happens, that belief requires. Some of us have given up hope. He says, I've tried, I've given up, I've tried it this way, I've tried it that way, I've done it this way, I've done it that way, I'm done. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna give up that burden. That burden to have some kind of good friend, that burden to find a significant other, that burden to reach my neighbor, that burden. Like we just like, look at what we said, like I would rather not feel and we just turn and allow our hearts to be apathetic. But we just don't feel, but we just we've resigned in our heart that we're never ever gonna hurt again. Right? And because we're never going to hurt again, we just become apathetic. We'd never, because if I, I would rather feel apathy than to desire and to long and to want for something knowing that I'm never going to get it. Because that's too painful. <coughs> I'm done. I've tried. I've given up. Right? And so it's just this idea, it's the burden of hope that keeps you in the game, it keeps you in the fight, right? He says, they're going to put you to death, but guess what? You will live. You will live. I will give you the crown, the crown of life. Again, we talk about Jeremiah 29, 20 and 9, says, but his message, Jeremiah was just talking, you know, Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet. He was known, he was just always lamenting, always crying out, always desiring for Israel to come back, come back to the Lord. He's weeping, he's crying, he's mourning. But they never, they kept, they, they didn't come back, they did not repent. But in Jeremiah 29, he says, but his message became a fiery fire burning in my heart, shut up in my bones. I became tired of holding it, and I cannot prevail. And he got tired. He got time. You see, when, when the Lord Jesus tells us that he's going to give us right here the crown of life, he's not just simply talking about eternal life. He's not just simply talking about like living with him eternally, but he's talking about the fullness of life. That many of us desire our best life now, but what Jesus is ultimately saying is that your best life is not in avoiding the pain of life. Is actually enduring pain. And it's in that pain that that abundant life that we would have, we would feel the pain. That the road, the road to joy is through our pain. It's not through our happiness. Right? Because many of us we believe it's our happiness. And happiness is about, is about the external. If I can control my environments and my circumstances, that it can bring me happiness. And so, like, and this is a, it's a totally different way. You've got to understand Greek thought 
Like, if you understand, like, in Greek gods and Greek thought and Greek mythology, Greek understanding of life is that you go outside to find hope. You gotta go search, you gotta go find it. You see, but Hebraic thought was more that it was that, that life, the fullness of life, was more in the struggle. It's in the struggle of life, it's in the wrestling with God in life. And so he says, I will give you the crown of life. The crown, right, that we have. That Jesus says, that I come to give you life. But not just simply life, but abundant life. That there was a crown that we had. And we see this idea, this imagery, because during that time there was a lot of the Roman games and the Greek games. And so oftentimes Jesus and the, and the apostles would go and they would talk about like crowns because they would always be, and even in Smyrna, Smyrna was a place where they had games on a consistent basis and they would crown you with a wreath, you know, the victors of the, of the game. He says, listen, understand that you are in this crowd. Understand that there's persecutors and accusers and slanderers and all these people that are against you and they're even going to put you to, some of you to death. He says, at the end, I, remember I am the Alpha, I am the, the Omega, I am the beginning and I am the end. I am the one who laid down his life and also raised his life. That I am, he says, that, so with you, Make sure that you are, that you keep competing for the crown. And so what we see is some of the characteristics of what of competing all throughout the scriptures um, when it talks about the, the types of crowns that we have. And here's a, here's a couple of crowns, right? They talk about in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 25, talk about an imperishable crown. An imperishable crown. 1, 9, 25 says, Now everyone who competes exercises self-control in everything. They do it to receive a perishable crown, but we have an imperishable crown. Right? And so he says that when we talk about the you stress, the you stress of the burden of life, the burden of discipline that we have. You know, these last couple of years have been hard for all of us. And you know, and I hope this last year, these last couple of years, you know, I've been through, I've been in counseling, I've been through therapy, and I've been you know, connected. There's a guy named Chip Dobbin with the Voice of the Heart that I've been meeting with for literally the last five years. Um, almost once a month, even sometimes more than once a month, you know, just because of just the, the stress that life has brought, the lack of control that you have. And I just remember one day, um, I'm just sitting there and I'm like, well, you know, during the pandemic, I'm like, we're meeting virtually. And, and I just remember I'm starting off and like, I'm going to call and I'm just laying to do my head down, and he's not on the call yet, and I'm just kind of like going through something right at that time, and it's like literally one of the days, like if I'm done, I'm quitting. I don't want to be a part of this, I'm done, I'm gonna like, I just want to throw in the towel. And I remember just like my head down, and I was just like, I was ready to give up. I was ready to give up, I was ready to throw it in. It's just like it's not worth the, 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 the stress that was going on. And I just remember that in that, and after talking with him, and just wrestling, and he just kind of come, and I remember this, like, I remember he's like, that wrestling, that pain, that struggle that was going on. And I remember at the same time, it was just like, it went from kind of this external pressure. And I was just like, man, there was this hope. There's this resiliency. There was this encouragement that I had. The pain didn't go away. It didn't alleviate the pain. The pain didn't just all of a sudden vanish or disappear. The problems didn't go. And I remember that in the midst of it, like I started off this way and he was like, tell me about that, what's going on? 
And then at the end of the, the time, at the end of the time, I remember, like at that time, man, this is good. Ah, thank you. And I was in the same motion. And he was like, isn't that good? I was like, what? What are you talking about? He says, even that you still feel the pain, you didn't get away from the pain. But now you have a different perspective of the pain. It is no longer you're bending the knee to the distress. You are now going in and leaning in to that new stress. To the presence and the power of the Spirit. To empower you to know the things that you got to do. It's not going to be easy. It's actually going to be hard. But there's a hope. And the question is, are you, are you willing to carry that burden of hope? That burden to stay in. That burden to stay in. The reason why so many of us, the addiction is so high in so many ways. I'm not just talking about alcoholic addiction and drug addiction. I'm talking about Netflix binging, all those things. It's because there's so many of us that we want to be abused. We want to get away from our heart. We want to get away from the pain that we have. And so instead of feeling anything, we'll just go and we say, I want a better life and I'll binge on whatever is going to take me out of my pain. But he says, he says, listen, Paul tells us the imperishable crown are given to those who embrace the new stress of the burden of not getting away from the pain that everyday life brings. The discipline life. He talks about the crown of rejoicing. Right? The, the, the type of pain that we have that comes through us reaching out through evangelism. The type of pain that we have that reach out from discipleship. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, 19, it says this. For who is our hope, our joy, our crown of boasting in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? Indeed, you, indeed, you are our glory and our joy. This is Paul talking to the people who he spent that in the church of Corinth. Paul spent the most time in, Corinth, in, in Corinthians, in Corinth, than he spent in any other place. And here we are, here the Corinthians saying, oh, Paul is fake, he's burned out, he's this, he's that, he's all tough and bad, he's writing his letters, but when he gets in front of us, he's weak, and like, and it's going at him. And he's just like, you're my very joy, I've poured everything into you. I've given you my life. I've given you, and he says, and this idea, that's like this crown, he says, Paul, talk about this joy, this pain, staying in it to the church that he's Communicating to. That is a crown of rejoicing. Right? To the church of Thessalonica, that's a, the, the, the idea of the, the burden of passion. What is passion? Passion is a willingness to endure pain for something that's greater than the pain. It's a willingness to stay in, to endure pain because there's something that's greater than the pain. So he talked about an imperishable crown, a crown of rejoicing. He talked about a crown of righteousness. 7 Timothy 2, 4 and 8. This is about those who want to stay in it. And they, 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 they're going to keep keeping their eyes staying upon Jesus, even in the midst of all the, the trauma and all the things that's going on happening inside. 2 Timothy 4 and 8 says, There is reserved for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. And not only to me, but all those who have done his appearance. Right? It's the burden of waiting. It's the burden of patience. 
Right? But that's at the very first thing. It's the most prominent thing when it talks about what love is. In First Corinthians chapter 4, when it says love is patient. You know what that word patient means? Now, I love the King James translation. Love is long suffering. Love is long suffering. Are we willing to suffer a long time in the things that we love? So he says, it's the crown of righteousness. That's God's way. It's a God made The crown of life for enduring trials and perseverance. Persevering. We see that right here in Revelation chapter 2 and 10, but we also see it in James chapter 1. He says, hey, listen, stop praying that God will simply deliver you from things. Because he says, blessed is the one who endures trials. Because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love right? He says, stay in it. Stay burdened. Endure. Right? That word that in the Greek is hupostasis. Remain under. He says, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. Because I love to give it to you. And it's in our fight, it's in our struggle that we find God. It's not in our happiness oftentimes that we think. And then finally, it says, a crown of joy. And this one is given for shepherding God's flock faith in 1 Peter 5 and 4. And he says, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive an unfading crown. Hmm. This is about shepherding God's people. Making it not just about yourself. Getting in and being empathetic with people. Grieving with people. See, the reality is that we all recognize is that in all of these things that we've had times and we've been burnt by people that we've loved and we've poured our life into, we've been hurt by and scarred by people that we've given it all to, we've been hurt and we've been scarred by, um, and we've, and many times we said, listen, forget it, I just want to go apathetic. I'm just going to go hard. I just want to go court. I just want to go binge. I just want to kind of move. And so oftentimes, many of us, we have this design to say, I'm just, I'm just willing to survive. I understand that Jesus promised me an abundant life, but I, you know, if it's worth the pain, I would rather not endure or experience the pain that life is. Right? And some of you have been like, I've done everything right, Jesus. I've done everything right, but I still feel this burden. I still feel this pain. And you may be feeling just like the church is running. There's no rebuke. There's no they deserve it. There's no, and this is what God, Jesus, he was like, he's not like not doing punches and all of the other seven churches. He says, I have this against you. There's no rebuke. He says, but I know and I see the poverty, the slander, the persecution. I see the distress that you have. But you haven't been the need. You haven't been the need. Your stress. You know, and what's what I love about that Moses, at the end of the divine, he could have gave a whole bunch of excuses. He could have gave a whole bunch of reasons to cuss God, to cuss everybody else out. He's like, y'all, oh, these why they go here in the first place. You know, because if you, you, you trace. The Pentateuch, the reason why Moses is not going, because he got fed up with the people. He was just like, I'm tired of you guys. I've been doing this, I'm laboring, I'm going to 
and on God for your behalf, and God was about to kill all of you, and I'm interceding for you. I've done all of these things, and you're still murmuring, you're still, and it's just like, forget it. Right? And he strikes the wrong twice. God's like, you allowed the distress to get to you. And he says, I'm not letting you in. Because you made it seem like the power was in your hand, but it wasn't in, it's never been in your hand. But even in the midst of all of that, even in the midst of all the pain and the trauma and all the things that Moses went through, what I love is how Moses finishes the race. Deuteronomy 34 and 7 says this, Moses was 120 years old. 120 years old. His eyes were not weak and his vitality or his new stress had never left him. Moses was just as passionate for the in the end that he was. He saw just as clearly for the Lord in the end that he was for the beginning. He did not allow the distress, the trials, the disobedience to take him off. The one thing that matters, that's constantly the hope in the heart to pursue God above all, above all others. And that's my prayer for our church. Just like the church in Smyrna, that we would endure, that we may be slandered, we may be persecuted, we may even experience poverty. But we will remain faithful in the way that Moses remained faithful. And the only way that we remain faithful is that we, that we understand that it doesn't come, that the weapons of our warfare are not about like the external, it's not about slandering, you know, dog eat dog world, like justified righteousness. It's not about that. It's not about striking the rock and showing how powerful we are and how much we can clap back. It's not about those things. But it's about trusting the one who says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. That we trust in him and, and we continue to depend on him. And this is one of the reasons why we want to take a stronger emphasis at our church to pray. You know, we talk about the announcements, but they can easily get lost in our announcements. And I just really, as, as pastor of the church, I just want to make an appeal to you guys. There's two times of prayer that we're, that we're having, you know, here. One is on Wednesdays, and that's going to be in-person prayer. And I understand that everybody can't come to make that, but it's every Wednesday at 12 o'clock, during your lunch hour, we pray for that time that our staff, we get together and we pray, pray for you, we pray for our church, we pray for our neighbors. But we want to just open it up for anybody who has the ability to come and be in person and just pray. And that we just go to the Lord and just ask God to, to help our help us uh, in the midst of these times that we have. But that's that's Wednesdays at 12. But then the other time that we're gonna have is, is 7 7 30. Um, is that time that we've had a group of people who've been praying. We never stopped praying. And then we just wanted to want to re-emphasize that. And that's online. Right? So take 30 minutes. Right? right after dinner or right before dinner, according to what time you eat. And just take 30 minutes and fast to come. Come with the Lord. Let's be a praying church. Let's ask God to do what only He can do. Right? And help us um, to recognize that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Because when we, 
begin to pray without ceasing, when we begin to begin to confess, when we begin to pray, and that's pray for praying through the Bible, and on God's word, and we start believing what God's word is saying to us, I think we will start seeing things in the way that God sees it. And that's really my heart and my prayer for us as a church. Let's pray. Thanks for worshiping with us. For more information about Blueprint Church, visit us online at blueprintchurch.org. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Blueprint Church. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Sunday.